0: You are now listening to Conscientization 101, an online magazine combining reflection, music, and action through independent media. It's uh, very important to be with conscious African women and men. And I'm very excited to see Conscientization 101, to see Sister Zari there, and the brother James, and uh, to see that you have started an organization to conscientize the world especially african people about what's really going on in this world conscientization world a lot of these people right now in this conscious, so-called conscious movement, they're not actually living in that in that lifestyle. Famous. That's why, you know, obviously yourself, we're in the same sort of frequency. That's why you're listening to the same things I'm listening to because we're sharing that same sort of thought. We want the same sort of things, and a lot of people don't want the same sort of things. Even yourself, what you're doing now is for the people. So everything is people-based. Globally conscientizing making me proud of what um, this kind of connection here is that you know, when, no matter what it says, no matter what it's done, um, you, you leave that, you leave listening to our music with a feeling, the same way we're going to leave this conversation with a feeling, and um, that is the most important thing for I&I, I, the, the vibe and the energy and the feeling that you leave with, because you might not remember every lyric, but you're going to remember the feeling. So um, that's, 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 that's really important, and that's what I'm getting from what you're doing, doing.
1: Doing, 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 doing. America began as an act of violence. America as a nation is rooted in violence, which is one of the reasons why it is one of the most violent nations on earth, whether you're talking about black or white. You see? As I said earlier, don't let that Constitution fool you and all of this democracy stuff talk and uh, deceive you. What are its origins? The origins of America are criminal, and it therefore is what I call a crimogenic society in that it breeds criminality because it is rooted in criminality. Why are you surprised? What are the two major acts of criminality that brought this country into being? The first one, of course, is what? The criminal destruction of Indian nations. Rape and robbery and thievery. Taking of lands and taking of wealth. Destroying of people's cultures and nations. Placing people in prisons called reservations, slandering their culture and their character as people. This country is built on it. I don't give a hoot whether you love it or not. It's what it's built on, and that's the reality of it. And why can I call it a crime? Because I can call it a crime based on the white folks themselves. They came over here with the Bible in their hand, didn't they? They came over here uh, touting something called the golden rule, didn't they? Do unto others that you would have them do unto you. Okay, so don't tell me they didn't know any better. (laughs) They would not have had that done to themselves. And yet they did it to others. And so within the context of their own cultural definitions, and within the context of their own religion, they were criminals. Okay, and we have to face that. Of course, the nature, next major crime was the enslavement of African people. Was the destruction of African civilizations? You talk about the disruption of the black family as if that disruption occurred since the 1960s and 70s. The disruption of the African family began with slavery. That's where it started. And the disruption of African culture, the disruption of social relations and arrangements and institutions of African people began with slavery, and it has not stopped yet. And yet millions of our people died in this process, and were killed in this process. And we have an endless history of death, damnation, and destruction. The coercion of our people into work. The slandering of our culture, the slandering of our character, the lynching of our people, the physical abuse of our people, the racial discrimination against our people, all of these things with which we are familiar have been practiced from day one in this country. And these practices are criminal. And therefore America is rooted in this criminality. People not only dominate other people, they rationalize that domination. They make an excuse for dominating other people. So the whites had to rationalize the their immoral behavior that was even condemned by their own Bible and by their own God. They had to rationalize the murder of Indians and the enslavement of black folk. And in order to rationalize it then, they had to create a racial mythology that we were born to be slaves. You see, so they're not doing anything wrong, this is right in line with God's plan. They brushed off that old dusty myth of Ham to try to convince themselves and us that somehow in the divine order of things we were designed to, to be the servants of others. And yet even the reading of that thing itself does not say that at all. But people believe it because this is a part of the racial mythology that has been laid down, you see. And so many of us are willing to forgive those other people for what they've done and ask nothing from them because in a sense we've subconsciously internalized these kind of mythologies, you see, that somehow we are people who are supposed to be the servants of other people. And that's one reason why we think that they're going to be exempted from the law. The Indians were destroyed because they were what? Savages, okay, they're the savages. They're the ones without civilization. They fed you when you got in with a starved to death, maintained the white colonies and so forth. And what thanks did they get for death? Why? Because they were savages. So again, what do you got? Oppression. Things being doing done what? Turn around. Turn backwards. You see? The victim is made to appear to be the perpetrator. Welcome to another episode of
2: 101. Podcast.
3: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Conscientization 101 Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, James Stone, Senior Editor for Conscientization 101. Today, we conclude our three-part series, Wielding Words Like Weapons with Lord Churchill. I know, I know, but guess what? You can always go back and listen to these podcast episodes. And even better, you can get the three-part unabridged interviews because we didn't touch on half the information in these episodes. And check this. What you really want to do to fully appreciate the unabridged interviews is get your copy of Wielding Words Like Weapons, Selected Essays in Indigenism, 1995 through 2005 by Ward Churchill. And use the unabridged interviews as a supplemental tool to the book. Now, as you know from listening to the previous episodes, 51 and 52, this series is a dialogue between Conscientization 101 and acclaimed American Indian movement activist intellectual, Ward Churchill, about his phenomenal book, Wielding Words Like Weapons, Selected Essays in Indigenism, 1995 through 2005. These dialogues took place over the course of two days September 15th, 2018, and October 27th, 2018. So similar to the previous episode, 52, what you're about to hear today comes from our second day of dialogue, October 27th, 2018. As we mentioned, that whole day of dialogue went for over four Four hours. hours. Yeah. Yeah. So we broke up this day of dialogue into two parts. Podcast episode 52 was the abridged version of part two of this series, as you know. And what you are about to hear today is the abridged version of part three of this series. The conclusion 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 of the series. My god. God. Now, the unabridged version of part three actually comes in at a little over 90 minutes. And boy, we went out with a a bang. Well, we are wielding words like weapons. Churchill, what do you expect? So, the total unabridged runtime for the entire three part series comes in at over five and a half hours. We told you you haven't heard the half of everything. We will let you know how to get the entire series at the end of the show. But for now, let's get into the abridged version of part three, shall we? So if you notice, we opened this episode with some words from our dear late brother, Dr. Amos Wilson, because we thought it dovetailed perfectly for what was going to be featured on this particular episode. And what we discussed today on this episode is the effects of the settler colonial polity of Canada on American Indians. Now look here, when we say, like we done said before in other episodes, when we say settler colonial, okay, settler colonial, we want you to think genocidal, okay? Death, destruction, mayhem—it's not some euphemism saying, "Oh, look at this, this is colonial times." It's death times. That's what you need to think. So when they say, "Oh, the settlers, the the the, the frontiersmen, the pioneer—that's another word for death dealer." Don't we get caught up in these euphemisms of these uh 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 uh, uh, uh this these this Western lexicon that goes to war with you with words, so you don't understand. That's death. death. So when we, we say Canada is a settler colonial polity want you say, oh, shit. So we got to stop thinking in reference just to the United States and say, oh, you know, slavery and bad stuff just happened in the U.S. Y'all remember, Columbus didn't make it to Norte de Americano. Okay? So this bad shit been happening way before the U.S. And then, you know, Canada, a little late settler colonial polity, they came in after everything got went down. But you know, they from the British and the French. Okay? There was some... There's American Indians up there. Okay? That's us talk about a turtle island. Okay? Just I just want y'all to put that in your mind. Again, we want to refer back to the opening with what Dr. Amos Wilson was talking about. Okay? And we examine this relationship, you know, between American Indians and the settler colonial polity of Canada through looking at a chapter in wielding words like weapons the chapter is entitled Keezy Babanizik the chapter is a poignant dedication to Brother Ward's late wife Leah Renee Kelly now check this out I could be more detailed but hell you came here to listen to the dialogue not me talk about the dialogue so So, let's let's begin the conclusion of wielding words like like weapons weapons with Ward Ward Churchill. Churchill. Now. All right. So moving on in our next question, uh, our next question in the the extremely personal and heartfelt chapter in dedication to your late wife, Leah Renee Kelly, titled, please, Ward, help me say that name. Kisla? Kisla? Kizzy Babinizicki. Kizi Babanese. Okay. Kizi Babanese. Got it? Yes, that okay. sounds
0: right.
3: Which is her indigenous name from her nation of the Lynx clan Ojibwe, which means being who circles with the birds. You discuss the foundational governing ethos of settler colonial societies, in this case, Canada, and how it continues to destroy. Real lives. The genocide of settler colonialism is not an event of long ago in the past, but one that is of necessity, continuously operative and subjects indigenous people, not only to physical violence, but also what Dr. Amos Wilson terms psychic violence. Uh, we must say that Canada ad nauseum is held up as some sort of beacon of North American democracy as presented by liberal settlers of the U.S., one in particular, I could say Michael Moore. He remember bowling for Canada. Canada's so great. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, but the truth of the matter differs with this propagandized farce as it is just as genocidal as its neighbor to the south. If you could please discuss the history and practice of Canada's notorious residential schools and the effects this had, this had has on indigenous people and how they shape Leah. And could you also discuss this as it relates to Leah's situation in terms of her being diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder, BDP, and how the therapeutic settler state, uh, uh, a therapeutic state, settler state therapeutics, as I called it, modus operandi in terms of caregiving, obfuscates diagnosis with the standard panacea of getting individuals to adjust uh, or cope. You know, it's it's it, it. it doesn't, it's not even equipped to try to solve the real actual problem. So, could you unpack all that if you would? Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: well, the um, residential school system, as it's called in Canada, down here, called them boarding schools, industrial schools. Actually, the terms are all interchangeable. The boarding schools were residential schools, and often they had training programs, at the industrial Park, And often in the training programs, they were actually manufacturing things to help finance the school. So they were essentially child slave laborers,
0: mm-hmm.
2: okay? They didn't really have a choice but to be there, and they would try to escape. But the, the object there was instated. Uh, I quoted uh, Richard Henry Pratt down here saying the object was to kill the Indians, save the man. Okay, destroy sense of indigenous identity, certainly knowledge of tradition, deny the students that, and Christianize them, particularly in Canada. That happened down here too, but down here these were largely government schools. Up there the government uh, licensed the churches to run the schools, so you have Catholic and Anglican or Episcopalian. Um and so on, schools that were run, but they all had the same objective, which was to deconstruct identity. They wanted children as early as possible, and it was compulsory. Their object, they never reached it, either down here or up there, was to get all of the children processed through these schools so that you simply have a die-out of indigenous consciousness, indigenous identity, Native people would simply merge, be assimilated, integrated, absorbed by the overburdened settler society. Duncan Campbell Scott, who presided over the residential school system up there, um, who was the counterpart to Pratt down here, never quite so poetic, but you know this is the resolution to the Indian question, is simply to eliminate the Indians this way. And that's considered a humane alternative. This kind of indoctrination, uh, cultural assimilation, forcibly—it's coercively. So that, that qualifies under the definition as Limkin advanced of genocide. You know, back he said that's a normative procedure. Physical genocide is atypical. It happens, and uh, the concept has to encompass. That process, but usually it's overlapping. This would be cultural genocide as they call it, which is not something distinct from genocide per se. Uh, They like to talk about uh, ethnocide, and if you look in the chapter of Axis Rule in Occupied Europe where he coins the term and defines the term genocide, there's a footnote at the bottom that says I could just as easily have called this ethnocide, but for you know, stylistic preference or whatever I've selected. In other words, ethnocides is a in. it's not a separate category. Mm-hmm. Okay. I say overlapping because part of the process is um, up there, Duncan Campbell Scott pointed out that half, one and two of the students being taken to the schools never lived to enjoy the benefits. That's the way he put it. Mm you got a fifty percent mortality rate yes. in these institutions, which are underfunded medical care uh almost non-existent food was poor at best and there's this continuous abuse there's continuous trauma there's early yes. separation from your family there's you know assuming the indoctrination takes hold okay you're you're coming to revile things in the same sense dominant society is, but you look in the mirror, what do you see? You don't see a white face staring back, you see an Indian face staring back. Mm-hmm. You've got innumerable ki- cases of kids trying to run away from this, some of them successfully, but then the authorities would come to their home and take them back to the school, and you've got quite a number who die in the process of Trying to get away from the school, a really famous case in the nineteen sixties of a, um, I believe his Ojibwe kid too, Charlie Winjack, uh, taken off and trying to walk home in the winter, and all he had was a windbreaker and some tennis shoes, and froze to death. He was following the railroad tracks to the west, trying to get back home, froze to death, trying to get there. That caused some attention to it. But, I mean, there were hundreds of Charlie Wood Jacks over the years. Mm-hmm. So you've got this uh, literal physical mortality. You know, and 50%, you can take manatee's word, he is the guy in charge of uh, Ministry of uh, Indian and Northern Affairs, it's called in Canada, that's the BIA in a way, as it would be down here. So he would not be overstating the case, and it wasn't like he was ignorant of the data. So take him at his word, one and two, that's 50%. Mortality rate in these schools, and it's children. It's exclusively children. That's right. The end, that's right. Down, being four years old and running up into their teen years, okay? But children, all of them, mm-hmm. all right? Just for some comparative purposes, Excluding the Operation Reinhardt camps and the other extermination centers in Poland and elsewhere in the east. Not extermination camps per se, but concentration camps. And there's a distinction to be drawn between the two. The worst of the concentration camps in terms of mortality is Mauthausen. And the, the mortality rate there was about 60%, 60-65% in that range. Okay, the schools were running 50%. Hmm. So you're talking mortality rate on the level of, say, Dachau, famous German concentration camp.
3: These were all children, too.
2: And these were all children, and they were forced labor and indoctrination. Well, the very best you come out of, you'll have some of them speak fondly. The indoctrination took hold. Mm-hmm. Okay, including Leia's father, who conceded most of everything that I was on about. Yeah, that's, that's true, and I know about that. And he was—he was in residential school, so he experienced it, and it really messed him up. One thing he was dedicated to creating Indian-controlled schools that. uh on his reserve, Sabaskong Bay, or Kucha as it's called. Okay, and got the first one going there. So it was a sort of breakthrough. He's an important figure in that, but he was also a terrible alcoholic. You know? Mm-hmm. I mean self-concept his family had been destroyed. He and his older brothers were that way. You know? And that that's the sort of thing that was happening. But he'd look back um, before I get, get off on the next thing I was going to say, he'd look back and say, but, you know, it's about all the gloom and doom about the residential schools. The closest friends I ever made were in the residential schools, which is true. You had a bonding among the students. So, you know, they would say it that way, and it's an attempt to to find a hook, some kind of human hook in that, that whole Yes, yeah. I'm sure. But... What you would have as a result of that is what Judith Herman calls uh, complex PTSD. I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder is triggered by a traumatic event. And there's a whole range of things that qualify. And there's been studies done on, you know, natural disasters like... uh, a dam breaking in Pennsylvania, and, and this community was virtually wiped out. And the survivors of that had tremendous trauma that had to be reconciled. Combat veterans often there's something that, that happens that's going to trigger that. Um, you know, sexual abuse. Yes, you, you rape, are, mm-hmm. Yeah, various things. But what you're saying, you know, with complex PSD. PTSD. It's not an event. That's right. It's repetitive events. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. Okay, that's the condition of people coming out of the residential schools. Well, if you're in that condition, what do you do? Mm. You're going to try to reconstitute some kind of life, something that resembles normal. You're probably going to look to your own group, Uh, so it's going to be Indians and probably Indians that have also undergone that experience they're traumatized too Mm -hmm. you've got all these concomitants to complex PTSD like empathy impairment and and so forth I mean you're emotionally numb you're trying to form bonds you want to create a normal environment Uh, family constitutes normal for almost everybody not not entirely, but uh, that's a, a sort of normal. But you have no experience with a family because you're institutionally raised and abusively so for the most part. Okay, and you're, you know, you you cannot meet the ideal. I mean, you've been trained generally for a menial level. You've got a destroyed self-concept, self-esteem. You're in a society that kind of reviles you anyway, racial epithets. Uh, all of that media depiction stuff that we were talking about, you know, plus Wigwam Hotel, Big Chief, writing tablets, Hiawatha pencils, blah, 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 There's mm-hmm. thousands of products, trivializing, modifying Indians, yep. great joke. Uh, cigar store Indians, you know, all of that visible and apparent, yep. continuous tone. Chances are you're not holding a job, and if you do, it's low-pay, and you can't provide for your children, and okay. And so now I've got this background that I'm a failure, and alcoholism is just catastrophic in so many circles. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about it, it's this isn't drinking socially. This is drinking like Nicholas Cajun leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, that was... Amounts of alcohol drunk for effect, and the effect is I want to just obliterate my consciousness. Yeah. Okay. John, her father, told me that he finally was prompted to stop drinking when the alcoholics in the alley wouldn't associate with him anymore. Wow. Yeah. Meanwhile, the children are all experiencing this and mm-hmm. you know, all the collateral effects. So they're being traumatized. This is intergenerational. It's communicable because the parents are traumatizing children by virtue of their trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. In the schools, you had students trying to get home, fleeing, trying to get home to escape the trauma. Mm -hmm. The next generation, two generations, are home. Where do they run to? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. There you have it. I mean, so you you you've got this cultural trauma is a real thing, and it's transmissible over multiple generations. I don't think the trauma of slavery is in any sense gone away. Oh no! no. Even by the most accommodationist, the accommodationist is simply the current manifestation That's of right. what was yep. called the house Negro. Mm-hmm. Okay. Integrationist is, hey, you know, maybe I can be a free black and a racist society, something
3: like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> See, you had that. And the impulse is to try to fit in.
3: Mm. Yep, yep,
2: yep. You're trying to fit into a society that reviles you so much they tried to destroy you mm-hmm. individually and collectively. Yep. And still doing it mm-hmm. and denies that they had anything but the best intentions while. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> tragic the results, you know. Use that word tragedy in in uh, conjunction with uh, Ferguson. All right. Let me suggest an alternative term: atrocity. Mm-hmm. Nothing tragic about it. It was deliberate. And it was intentional. And well, there you go. There you go. And we got this systemic atrocity. But you're trying to fit in. It's almost like the Stockholm Syndrome, you know, people who are absolutely disempowered and held at the whim of those who have taken them hostage.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: yep.
2: And still also trying to, you were counter you're trying to salvage some pride in your own traditions, you know, Mm-hmm. A lot of people trying to get back. Some of them repudiated at all, one nothing to do, when did just society, others trying to relearn. And then the Kelly boys, the brothers, the other two, maybe more than John, although he wasn't unconversant and he was really fluent in his language, but he wouldn't let his children learn it.
3: I remember you said that in the book, yeah, he could speak his language.
2: On a useful language, wanted lay to uh, study French, which mm-hmm. he did and she was desperately trying to learn her own language towards the end. Uh, yeah. Well, she was smart. Here's how you fit in. Okay? You learn about the dominating, the colonizing, the whatever, term you want to put, society. She could talk Sartre. She could talk. European philosophy to a certain extent, cinematic theory, aesthetic theory, art history, and all the rest of that. She was going to school at University of Colorado. Not a whole lot of Indians there. She had some friends that were Indians, but none of them were Ojibwe. That's something that would be understood among the Indians, but most of the friends, she was in our school. There were a couple of uh, Indians there, one painter and one graduate student. But most, most, uh, I mean, the teacher is not somebody she can be socializing with, and the graduate student was a guy. So that had its limits, too. Her little pack were all white women, mm-hmm. okay? And she could talk their culture with them. Better than they could. Hmm. But there was no expectation they considered reasonable that they know anything at all about mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, that complex of things, and there's there's more that you could go into, but I mean this is an emblematic story. And this is someone who excelled. hmm But it was just closed down destructive. Uh, To the pattern, and maybe she was trying to make a connection with her father, figuring out where it was that he had been in terms of the alcohol. But, I mean, problems went much deeper than that, went into childhood, and it wasn't because she was abused in a conscious way by parents, but that whole context created by the residential schools and the trauma that he suffered and all that, Made an abusive situation even though he wasn't abusing her sexually, physically or otherwise it was an impossible situation so it ended up being self-nullification a borderline personality she couldn't figure out who it was she was supposed to be was allowed to be might be she had all these conflicting tendencies you know aspirations if you will that were arguing and both sides of her head at once, all the time. So, self-destruction, and that that's not uncommon. No. Indigenous people, generally, have extraordinarily high rates of uh, suicide directly, and of course, the kind of drinking I was talking about is simply slow motion suicide, so. Mm-hmm. You have these abbreviated lifespans. If you took that as a proportion of the population, you've got a genocidal impact that way. But in the denial and all the rest of that and the misrepresentation of reality, you've got an ongoing cultural genocide in any case. So now I need to take a break. I'll be right back.
1: Thirteen miles from Paul Bullard's home is a public housing project in familiar red brick. It is like most such projects in most big cities. And cemented into the red brick are a series of public policies that work against the children of the poor. Because housing for the poor is scarce, the 1,100 apartments hold not the officially registered 6,000, but with unofficial residents, relatives, and friends more like 8,000. Because mothers travel up to four hours a day to work in downtown office buildings or suburban homes, their children are left to care for each other or for themselves.
0: I remember turning 13, still a little innocent, losing my religion just a little slow. 100 loose joints under my cane go, lease suits with the stitch creases, fat laces in my suede Adidas. Toothbrush if I need to clean them, belt buckle with my name on it hella youngest youngest tried, jump me for it, urban struggle, birthed a couple scuffles, took a couple L's, couple double U's, before bitches were being double U's, she had a bubble, we became a couple, I like to thank the niggas I grew up with, and all the grown-ups to stop us from doing stupid shit, even though we gravitated towards stupid shit, got all full of life, nothing to do with it.
1: We have been saying that poor children who depend on the benevolence of public policies suffer from policies that are far from benevolent. I think that if children are deprived of the things they need, both physically and psychologically
2: at a young age, that there comes a point in which they cannot be redeemed.
0: I remember turning 15, left the youth detention center just a year ago. The best food, clothing shelter was a homeless shelter. Self-esteem flatlining everything inside them. Take a lot of risk, play a lot of games. Some touch death, some niggas got maimed Some finish school, some made a low name, some made a little money, some a little famous. Sometimes you can't shake that grind. Fighting the odds against poverty, crimes, and shit that's designed. I mean, focus in retrospect, the ghetto it functions just like apartheid. At 16, I got a part-time job. My ass was pumping gas up on ass understanding counting thousands of dollars some And I would use that word redeemed in all of its psychological and spiritual implications. They become hopelessly thwarted, stymied, atrophied. The heart dies, the mind becomes filled with all of the hate. To turn 17 pregnant lady selling ass just to get a blast innocence extra stage left not a lot of days left at the age where you end up in a cage If you escape death Everybody on the block Kitchen rocks in them Project women stemming So they spots rent them We can rent a smoke A whipper for a couple cracks Couldn't drive Bring it back with a couple cracks Dumb as fuck Still flirting with supreme wisdom 120 yards ass She was in the building She was different lot of niggas was attracted to her I got the math Only 5% truly knew her Even fewer do her Others just profess to Conservative underdevelopment Will arrest you Real speech The tendencies of every And multiply this child by many child and we have many sins and multiply this enough and I think you have national sins, not just the individual sins that we all commit from day to day, but a national failure of determination, an ethical failure and in many respects a a slow kind of suicide which one generation commits another generation in significant numbers to be hurt
1: and uh, killed, I would say, in spirit.
2: You you have an option, I suppose, since we're talking about cultural fluency and all of that, and finding a way to fit in there. You can always become Thomas Soul or something like that. <laughs> He's conversant with uh, a lot of European tradition. I would expect that his knowledge of African tradition is about negative numbers, but. He, <laughs> I don't know that for sure. He certainly doesn't make any intelligent reference to it. <laughs> <laughs> and that you know, that was she was being embraced in that way. That was the direction she could have gone, but she I mean it was a direction she could have gone in the sense that it would have been accepted for her to do that, I and mean, then she would have been encouraged and reinforced and all the rest of it, but it wasn't a direction she could have gone and remained in any sense true to herself there's that conflicted aspect and so there's that internal war going on Mm -hmm. you know my stuff scared her people that I associated with and and such I mean there there were some rough people in the loop name stuff And I can understand why that would scare her, you know. And one of her uncles had been involved with Anishinaabe Park and stuff, and the Kelly boys were notorious in general, especially the oldest one who was big. He was bigger than the others. Her father was a small man, but his oldest brother was good size. And they get drinking and yeah, just go clear out a bar, bam. Mm-hmm. I, but that wasn't the direction for her to go either. And, you know, Dame security people and stuff, you're rationed up a little higher than what the Kelly boys were doing. Okay. I mean, I was, I was tight with Bob Robidoux as one on uh, Peltier's co-defendants. Code mm-hmm. Okay. This... This sort of scared the whole family, I think, in a way. But, you know, <laughs> and she didn't want to go into that either. So then the direction is, which direction can she go? mm mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't have an answer to that. Not for her. I couldn't. Andrew, I think I also said in that, that you're reading from, you know, I can think of a thousand things I did wrong.
3: Hmm. I remember you said
2: that I don't have an answer to what it was. I could have done right. It's not something I created. It was a dynamic of phenomena that I kind of understood and trying to reinforce and encourage and all of that. But, You can't solve it for someone else. You can just try to create a context, and the context frightened her because it's a frightening context.
3: Yeah, it, it's yeah, man, yeah, yeah, it, it, it yeah. It's pretty sad. It, well, the thing is, kind of like you know, reading it is kind of like you know, you got you know, War Church Hill, you know, and, and you know, you've it's kind of like why people say like well, if y'all had kids, they'd be born revolutionaries or whatever. Not necessarily. It's kind of like you said. It's like, it's kind of like the whole conflict. Am I, if I'm black, does that mean I know how to use a Mac 11, a Glock and shoot and do drive-bys or clear out bars or, you know, mm-hmm. to, but then I don't want to be black like you because James, because that, that shit kind of scares me as well. And it's kind of like you said, it's like, you know, I've dealt with people, You 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 try to give a context and everything, but it's kind of like, they don't, you know, you try, you can't say it's, it's really hard because it, you can you can see yourself as like, I got all these books and I've done certain things and you think you can have the answers, but when you're dealing with real people, it's no longer like a...
0: People react to things differently.
3: It's not different. And, and going back to something you said on uh page 346, is footnote 118. I, I just want to read this to the listener. You said, even in optimal circumstances, circumstances a decisive termination of the active source of trauma and a social environment facilitating potential recovery there can be no realistic expectations that the aftershocks of traumatic damage ever completely dissipate yeah and you know somebody you know will say well they told me can't you give this youngster this book or whatever it's like uh, sometimes people have been through so much. Yeah, you
0: can't do... It, it, it gets
3: yeah. real personal. It, 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 does. And it And the essay is really personal to some of the, you know... I mean, it was it was really... It was a tearjerker, man. I'm not, you know... Because it's like... Man, you know, I, I was, it was really, like, really... It was a real... I was a real... I'm surprised you shared that because I was like, it, this is... It was really intense, man. Oh, yeah, when
0: they say when they had that little saying, "kill the Indian, save the man," they're not saving anybody. They're just <laughs> making a bunch of broken people. Yeah, I
2: mean, yes, yes, and you know, yeah, that's out of fanon and stuff, but it is. Mm-hmm. About his answer got cut to colonizer's throat, yeah. and I don't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. and you know he meant it quite literally
3: yeah he There's did
2: he used to do it but you gotta figure out how
3: mm-hmm.
2: but you know
3: mm-hmm. and yeah and also the fact that like when you were, y'all kept trying to get her help um, and um it was just, yeah and, and how like they didn't want to give it the proper diagnosis cause then it might affect their careers and you can't take it. You can't take anything out of the context that you're in, in terms of even when we look for help, you so to speak. And it was the same to society oh. that destroyed her. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
2: The whole therapeutic <laughs> paradigm is established to take the individual and adjust them. Yep. To whatever it was that, <laughs> to put it in, uh, Street language drove them nuts. Mm-hmm. The problems with them, not with the circumstance yep. that created the effect. Accommodationism, mm-hmm. and you see a parallel to the integrationist dynamic there. It's accommodationist. It's trying to fit and alleviate the pain by assuming that there's something about you that is causing the infliction of the mm-hmm. pain, and there's something wrong with the. Mm. Person or institution whatever that's inflicting it it's like say, hey the Jews were they brought it on themselves by being different
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know there wasn't anything wrong with the Nazis
3: exactly mm-hmm. right?
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> on its face, but that's the nature of what we're doing here the thing but in the in the therapeutic box the therapeutic state is it was called everybody needs a bit of uh, Counseling to adjust them properly to social compliance. Mm
3: -hmm. There you go. Okay.
2: Yep. Yeah. That's the problem with uh, borders, according to Herman. And there's that inside joke that I quoted in there. What do you do when you diagnose your client as being borderline? The answer, refer them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because, you know, It may never go away, but the only even partial resolution is the alteration of the circumstance that created the condition. Okay? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So that's the notion of radical therapy, as I understood it, was that, well, (laughs) in simplest form, revolution is the only therapy that's going to have any effect.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in this chapter uh, real personal chapter it also kind of reminded me of something you said in uh, pacifism as pathology uh, talk when you that guy said that you know uh, peaceful kind find ways where he can still maintain his privilege and you was like you know we're talking about a real horror show over there we're talking about real babies this is not some abstract conversation and kind of like how you mentioned on page 331 in wielding words as weapon In the same uh, chapter, you said, I, along with many others, have tried to address this reality in uh, various ways, resorting mostly to language and pretensions of objective scholarship, deploying our graphs and charts, our proportionalities, and other statistics, our historiographical and sociological and legal definition. In this, despite our best intentions, we have in many respects, perhaps most, served mainly to consummate the very crime we report, purport to oppose, objectifying and thus dehumanizing the victims, making the nature and magnitude of their suffering appear sterile, academic, as lifeless, and inconsequential as even the most vile of perpetrators might wish them to be. There is a distinctly, distinctively repugnant aroma of detachment, of distance, and unreality about it all, as if what were at issue amounted only to grist for study groups and parlor debates. And I want to just say, you know, I've talked to various academics and stuff and they study quote unquote black issues and oppressed issues. And they don't, in the circles they hang in, they don't know nobody that missed no meal. They don't know. No, they don't even know. They still think it's food stamps instead of Lone Star cards and stuff. They don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Lone Star, I Lone, Texas. Okay, Lone Star, that's the food stamp card. But basically, my point is they don't know nobody been unemployment. I it's all academics. You know what I'm saying? And, mm. and yeah, they don't live with these people. They just kind of like study them as things, they think of them, you know? So when I read the chapter, you know, the chapter is like, well, this is Ward Churchill. Why don't he work? You know, not me, but people might say, well, can't he work some Ward Churchill magic and, you know, make it? Well, that's what people yeah. think. They think stupid shit like that. You know, it should rub off, but we dealing with real people mm. who are really colonized. Ain't just some cute fucking word I like to sound to be edgy at a cocktail party. I don't even go to no goddamn. Cocktail. It's people's lives are affected. If you you in Atlanta, right? I want you to go see how many young black women you see with blue contacts, and blue eyes, blonde and, hair. And, and blonde hair saying, I ain't got nothing to do with none of those niggas from Africa. It's real people. It's messed up. It's family members that say, Oh, is it I've people tell, as long as it's white, I buy, you get them niggas around me, I ain't gonna do nothing. It's these are real lot. It's it. it, it we can make, I, you know, I be joking about it sometimes because, like you said, I'm trying to get a grip on reality. But it's some bad shit, and I'm, I'm just emphasizing. And it's the same thing, like you said, when Leah's father was like, I'm going to get this education out of redness. I'm not going to be Indian. And he was put in his place by the colonial society. And mm-hmm. how do you deal with that shit? This ain't no easy thing to come up with. You know, it's struggle. It's intergenerational, like you said. So,
2: it sure is. Yeah. yeah. There's no painless route to it. And then that's my old rap about can't change your diet, listen to the right music, read the right books. Okay. Turn the right incense, blah, 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 better bike paths, all of that shit. <laughs> 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 so the Algerians, you know, I mentioned Fanon, took them a million to a million and a half people dead yes. in that war of liberation and liberation. Uh, Kick loose from the, the settler colonial. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that's ghastly, though. Except, you know, you got to understand the context of people dying continuously, prematurely, immiserated for the duration of their lives. That's the cost of not stepping up That's to right. It. That's right. So, and it just goes on and on and on while people circle the same old rock like alchemists pretending that if you repeat the same failed experiment that is relatively safe for me and mine, (laughs) long enough, often enough, enough times, it's going to produce a a different result. I mean, (laughs) that's positively medieval thinking there. (laughs) And they complain about uh, fundamentalist Islam being medieval. I
3: know,
0: right? (laughs) Exactly.
3: Yeah, it's it's just really it's really crazy, especially how like you brought out in, in the Canadian or residential schools, like the abuse, like eating vomit, uh, yeah, the sexual abuse of the children, and I I can't remember the actual because I, I didn't take it up down to my notes. It was somebody at a residential school, I think it was in a footnote, or somebody said like if we were to try to repair on par or something or something, we couldn't do that. We would bankrupt or something. Basically, it was like. We ain't got nothing for you and we know we fucked up, you know, and it's like, so what? You
2: know, it's well and they put the weight on the victims again. Yes. Like there were some of those schools where the sexual predation w- went to a hundred percent. Everybody.
3: And these are children now.
2: Everybody- and these are children, these are children. But I mean, among other things as an adult, that's really fucking sensitive. You know? And yeah. Canada convened these tribunals to uh, prosecute some of the offenders that were still alive, but it meant that their victims as adults who have been not wanting to talk about, disclose this violation of themselves, this really, really intimate thing when they were children, you know, they were compelled to testify. Yeah, so suicides among the victims... Some of those guys, a little handful talking to prove the system works. Justice was done and all that shit. They went to prison. But their victims in the process put in prison ended up pulling the plug all together. Mm. That's the way the process works. Mm-hmm. You know?
3: and, and this is how you build <laughs> a settler colonial nation. This
2: isn't like a Barrett. <laughs> Mm-hmm.
3: This is how it rolls. It
2: is. Now, that takes, you, that takes you around to the logic of Fanon. Yeah. Okay. It would have been far more empowering, not destructive, for the victims to just slit the guy's throat.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, fully deserving of it. But that would disempower the state that it per- created that situation in the first place. Yeah. Now, it gets to preside over the justice of the outcome. No, justice would have been I'm going to sever his jugular and my relation to the state and his sense of justice you know entitlement to that status it's guilty as he is mm-hmm. both at the same time mm-hmm.
3: all right this is where we got to leave it for now but not to Fred. If you want to finish listening to Wielding Wielding Words Words, Like Like Weapons with Ward Churchill, Churchill, Part 3, the conclusion of the series in its entirety, all you have to do is go to our store. There you will have access not only to this particular interview, but to all of C101's unabridged interviews, musical commentaries, and merchandise. And most importantly, you will be supporting 100% independent
1: media. Yeah.
3: We promise you, just as with all of our Unabridged interviews, the podcast was just the tip of the iceberg, we touch on so much more, so you definitely want to get the Unabridged interview of Wielding Words, Words like, like Weapons, Weapons with Lord Churchill, Churchill, part three, where in addition to what you just heard, we discuss the following. The following. Um, Ward, well, we want you to know if you could also discuss what you describe as Eurofeminism, which is what could be considered by settler society as the good colonizers attempting to speak for colonized women and supplant themselves as the oppressed altogether goes into detail on that on page 237. Uh, listen to the audience. We we can see this phenomenon currently manifesting itself with the hash, the me too hashtag. Right. And with the repopularization of Margaret Atwood's uh, the handmaiden's tale it's you know everybody's like oh my god can you believe when they like uh when they like enslave somebody they change their name oh my, oh my god I actually had somebody tell me that somebody I work with was like <laughs> hey you know they may they don't have their own names my ironically my my name is James Stone right that's a that's a real African sounding name Hank Brown anyway uh and ironically At- Atwood is a settler from the settler colonial polity of Canada you know and the Dilatons research. Uh, ethic of, of, of what white folks did to Indigenous people would make her little handmaidens' tale look like Walt Disney. I just want to throw that in there because mm-hmm. she's, she, but you know, this is this is oppression never seen before because it happened to little what was her name? I forgot her name. The the, the whatever have, in the main character anyway. I forgot her name too. Airstrid or whatever. I tried to forget that show. I know. Also the book. <laughs> I remember I read the book. I was like, this this is a this is a nice version of slavery or something, right? <laughs> also. Could you tie this into could you also tie you know how they're trying to supplant uh colonial indigenous people's struggles? also could you tie this also could you tie that and also how do they do the same thing in regards to homosexuality? Yeah, I went there a particular Western cultural attribute to indigenous people as a way as they as they mentioned earlier to vitalize the co- their uh, colonial hold on Turtle island. And I'm I'm particularly referring to a footnote uh 147 on page 266 and I just want to say real quick an anecdote because I remember one time uh somebody had told me some uh, a, a white homosexual had went to uh Chiapas right and they was like want to see you know go to Chiapas and see how they were struggling the zapatistas and stuff and then the white homosexual conferred to somebody that talked to me I didn't know the white person who said the homosexual said it but the guy said to me the white homosexual was really upset and he was like I don't see how the zapatistas are making any homosexual headway you know now here it is they they're trying to like uh uh usurp everybody's struggle and put forth what they want and then uh, and going back to your qu- the footnote on 140 uh footnote 147 on page 266 how they're trying to make their problems or their contradictions or say that homosexuality was also found in indigenous societies. It was also found in African societies. As opposed to being a culture particular, every contradiction they had in their nation is a universal problem. Therefore, there is no hierarchy, only our problems get you know. And then, go ahead, Ward, take it away. You go ahead. Well,
2: again, I mean, it's sort of like opening up the, the can on cinema. It co- covers a lot of ground. Well, I was... Talking about, at the time, I think, when I, I made the critique in Eurofeminism, i do was a definite strategy that was undertaken to promote something w- within the settler society, the Euro-American society, to maybe initially equivalence with race as an issue but ultimately, to supplant it again, putting white oppression, mm-hmm. real or imagined, and it—you know—it's a patriarchal society. A lot of the critique is sound in a way, except it's juxtaposing competition with now mm-hmm. a an illustration of what I'm talking about was there were issues in SNCC, which I'm aware of. I knew Stokely Michael, Kwame Ture, reasonably well. We talked about various things when we were, oh, righty. He'd come over to dinner when he was uh, at my place. I cooked for him. Um, when he was in Denver, he also came was on the ground with us in South Dakota on several occasions. So that was over a period of years. But there was an issue, and he, you know, he kind of described it. That there was there was a, a bona fide issue in Snick, having to do with the uh, relations between male and female. But what was driving it to a level of intensity were complaints by. The white women, and this is before the whites were expelled, and one reason why they were expelled, not the only reason by any stretch, but a reason, was the white women were actually organizing a sort of a protest, preempt uh, issues under discussion at the annual meeting about the discrimination involved, in they were assigned all but exclusively to work in the offices uh, as teachers in uh, freedom schools and various things like that, not allowed to do field organizing. And the reason for that was real simple it dictated by the environment. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you a black male and a white female out doing field organizing, <laughs> black. Hilp. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Simple as that. You know, mm-hmm. and it. it I say it's not the only reason, but it figures into we don't need white people to organize the black community. Mm-hmm. The problem is the white community, maybe you all ought to go organize that rather than coming insisting in equal place in terms of organizing our community. But there were there were problems, issues. I don't even know if they were problems, but there were issues raised, some black women too, Ruby Doris and others. And the attitudes of some of the men was untoward. Okay. Stokely was something, he should have been a stand-up comic in some ways. <laughs> it could be downright funny. He could do a comedy <laughs> routine and have it, you know, and break tension that way, among other things. <laughs> so this was coming to a head during the, the annual retreat meeting that they were having there. And that evening, I mean, it had been debated in timbers flared and so on in the evening when everybody was just kicking around. He had done one of his little comedy things. So this was the issue of the day. And he parodied, lampooned, ridiculed, if you will, by impersonating the attitudes in exaggerated form that were objectionable among some of the men. And that's where that famous line, well, we understand that the position of the woman in SNCC is prone.
3: Prone, yeah.
2: And everybody left. And Casey Hayden and uh, Mary, whatever her name was, and it's escaping me right now, who were there, were at pains. For decades after that, thing. that was not a serious comment. Mm. That was a joke and it was intended to further the women's agenda, you know? And as Ruby Doris said, well, Stokely was the one man that I could count on to back me in decision making and such. Mm-hmm. And SNCC, it was a woman who wasn't even there who took that as evidence of black male sexism, the sexism yep. of the black yep. rights movement. Yep. Okay, it's become an archetype of male sexism, macho, insensitivity, and, and so on and so on and so on. still getting repeated and getting repeated by black women now in black feminist literature wow. as yep. if it was true. Mm-hmm. I, and mm-hmm. That was conscious, intentional, deliberate, counter-the-facts but it was for political advantage, and it was to demote the ascendancy of Black Power politics that was yeah. prevailing at the time, and promote. Well, they call it the women's movement or feminism, but it really wasn't at that time. They first two women's uh, feminist uh, conclaves, whatever, on national level that I'm aware of. Black women were explicitly excluded. It was a white women's. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now
0: they're trying to make it all women.
2: Well, <laughs> and, you know, perhaps there's some issues that didn't need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. I think feminism is inherently part of humanism. You know, I don't think it's it's separable, but it's it's treated as if it were separable.
3: Mm-hmm. That's right. Yes, right. Yeah, that's, right. that's, yeah, that's what they, exactly. That's, but that's what they culture do. Yeah, and that's, that's right. what they yeah, do.
2: But it, mm-hmm. it it was to demote the issue of race and promote the issue of sex or sex sexual discrimination first between the sexes, and then you know, gay and uh, transgender and all that really is an extension from that Mm -hmm. not not that it's something new that it was invented as a result Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. there was an empowerment to carry that direction
3: oh yeah you know you want to finish what brother war was expounding on because we go into so much more so pick up wielding wielding words words like weapons weapons with war churchill Churchill. part three. three Link to this Underbridge interview is in our show notes, and we will link to parts one and two of the Underbridge interviews in the show notes so you can get all of it together. All right. This episode has featured music from... Conscientization, Conscientization 101. 101. Decolonize, Decolonize this. this. Properly, Properly defining Settlers, defining settlers. Part, one. Part one. From our musical commentaries this collection. Is Wise, intelligent. Wise Intelligent. Featuring Black Page. Black Page. By, design. By design. From his from album, album. Ponzi. Links to featured music are, once again, in our show notes. In addition to linking to Brother Ward's Wielding Words Like Weapons, Selected Essays in Indigenism, 1995 through 2005, we also have included links to other works by him. And also, we have linked to his forthcoming book, which is available for pre-order, From, From a, a Native, Native Son, Selected, selected Essays in Indigenism, 1985, 1985 through 1995. 1995. All right. Now, don't forget... When you visit us at conscientization101.com or c101magazine.com, sign up to our mailing list for exclusive information and downloads. Hit up our store where you can download our free gift today. Pick up an unabridged interview or two. Pick up a few musical commentaries and a shirt. Support 100% independent media so we can continue to learn from each other. Also, don't forget to check us out on Twitter at conscient1. That's C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-1 on Facebook at Conscientization 101 and Instagram at C101 Editors. We want to thank Brother Ward for taking time out of his schedule to dialogue with us. We hope you enjoyed this series and know that you will find Brother Ward's work an invaluable weapon for conscientization. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.
2: Peace. Conscientization.